and thank you for once again choosing the Got A Job podcast. If you read the description to this episode, you will know that today's focus is on the works of Damon Albarn and his bands from Blur to Gorillaz and his solo work. These are just a few of my favorite Blur, Gorillaz, and Damon Albarn songs. There's lots of great ones out there. And if you've read the description, you know that there's... Now, Anchor and Spotify podcasts come with a question from the author to the audience. And also there's a link to send in a voice message. You can send in a voice message. If there's anything you want to hear on the show, I'm pretty open-minded and uh, we'll give it a shot. So use that link, hit me up, or even just give a shout out. If it's a good one, I might use it uh, multiple times and recycle it throughout the rest of the uh, series. Anyhow. Like I say, thanks very much for listening, and let's get into it. It starts with a special presentation of Blur creating their album, The Magic Whip. The following is a special Got A Job presentation. We'd found ourselves in Hong Kong with... um five days off. If you can get the four of us in a room together, like really good stuff tends, tends to happen. It was a rare opportunity that we sensed where we could uh, get into the studio and see what uh, new Blur might sound like. I knew that if there was going to be a Blur record, and that, and that was the, the big pressure, that it had to be flipping good. There was a sort of series of fortunate events, I've been calling it, that got us to this point. And um, I think it was a big festival in Japan that was cancelled, and I was going, oh, what a surprise. It was literally a sort of way of using our time. Uh, and I thought, well, like, we'll make it in five days and then put it out the next week or something like that. I think because we've been doing a few gigs and we got used to playing with each other again, it was completely unselfconscious. There was There was no sense of pressure of like, on Tuesday the 12th of July you will go into the studio with such and such a producer and try and write your comeback single. It was just, let's just go in the studio and play because actually there's, there's nothing else to do once you've been shopping in Hong Kong. The wonderful thing about being in Hong Kong was there was no distraction and it was, it was a very sort of uh, grounding process really because we all got on the tube again together basically. We get out of the tube station there'll be lots of kids going to school, won't be pretty husky and bustly but nowhere near as busy as the main Hong Kong bit and then we'd walk up this street and it was just life going on. It wasn't particularly a classy area or anything like that and we'd go down this tiny little mugger's alley and then come out the other side, cross the road, and there was this nondescript sort of door. We'd go up the stairs, oh, in this tiny little lift, actually. We'd go up there, and then we'd be in this studio. It was in a back street called Nanking Street, and you got there on the central line, and the stop was called Jordan, and it was a very nondescript building. It was called the Acme Building. It had no windows, but it's really small. I mean, really, really cramped. I was sitting here, my, my amps were in this cupboard, and Damon was right next to me with this sort of synthesizers. Alex was just there, and then, and then Dave was out 
sort of isolate but then we're like oh this is rubbish and we got him in here so we we're all in the control room and we weren't particularly meticulous about how we set up but it was just good to just feel free and to just get a couple of chord sequences and go around it and because um, quite often when you record it's a lot less casual we just went in there and just played our hearts out and i think if you listen to the music there's a sense of a, a, a urgency about it it was really like our very first rehearsal, just the four of us in a sweaty, horrible room, just kicking the can around and, and really enjoying each other's playing and company, and it felt good. It seemed very familiar. We slotted back in with each other. The fact that we got so much done in so little time, I think, speaks to the fact that it wasn't there wasn't a kind of getting to know me, getting to know you session. It was straight into the deep end. Everything was just about putting ideas down. You know, every day we got there and we just played, 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 played. And when we'd had enough of each other and, and enough and we're exhausted, we stopped. It was, it was very loose, really, and then the jams were so long that I think we naturally did everything that we probably could before we just started. And looking bored again. You know, we kind of spent ourselves on every bit. And then it would be like, well, about these chords, go these chords, blah, blah, blah. and we're shouting out chords. And um, and this was kind of how these things were, were born, and Damon was saying things that were coming into his head, really. We got back and got into our domestic lives. All the time, there was this thing where I wonder if anything will happen to that. It felt really good, but I but then thinking, well, was it ever the point for it to become anything? Was was the point of it was just a jam? Was it? I think it's much easier to start something than finish something, and that initial sense of pace and momentum, gathering steam. As soon as the band were all apart again, I, I guess it just it just dissipated. I remember us being quite excited at the end of it. I certainly felt that we'd uh, made some good progress and done some fun, interesting, good work. There was definitely enough there to suggest that a record could be made, but I sort of went off and went off and did my own thing, which everyone else did. And then I think Graham just sort of at some point wanted to do something and, and really felt that there was that there was enough material in there to do something with. We played a lot, and there was a lot of different sorts of jams loosely based around this or that, chord sequences. But we couldn't really call them songs, so it, was, it wasn't like there was, they were fully formed anything. No melody lines particularly. So it just felt like it was a sort of a weird exercise to fill some time for a while. I, I guess it was last autumn. I just gave it a lot of thought. I thought, it's, I want to have a look at it. I really want to just see 
Because if it is there, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. And I, and I think it's, as a musician, I suppose, and as a member of, of the group, group, I felt this kind of weird duty. You know, I'd messed up with Blur quite a lot in the past. I, I thought maybe, you know, if, if I have a look at this stuff and something comes of it, it would be, it would be a sort of a, a re, you know, redress the balance past shame or something. It does just take somebody to push things along. It surprised me if I'd have done it. But that might have surprised me. <laughs> I just phoned management and I just said, look, I, I really would like, I've got an idea. I, I want to have a look at this stuff. I think it's so overwhelming a job to go through all that, sift through all that jamming, what's, what, whatever. But I, I really think we have to do it. And all we have to do is find the right person to sift through it. And I think that's Stephen Street. And they said, okay, tell Damon, talk to Damon about it. So I met up with Damon and I said, I'd really like to have a look at this stuff. Because, you know, it's not often I go and meet with Damon in this secret place. And he's like, come on then, what's going on? Because he'd had an inkling. He just came up to the studio and we had a chat about it. And I said, well, that's a wonderful idea. I mean, it was kind of like, it was like music to my ears, literally, because it's like, oh, Graham, he's sort of back. I was pretty nervous about it because, um, I, you, you know, you sit and get, even though we're oldest of friends, brothers, etc. you still double guess a little bit. You're still not quite sure how he's going to take the idea of me um, taking the reins on this one for a little while or, or sitting in the hot seat on it or or taking it away to like fiddle about it. You don't, you don't know how much trust you have within the whole thing. But he was like, yeah, fantastic. And he just seemed relieved. And he, and he went, Stephen Street. And I went, yeah, I think, I think Stephen Street. It was probably too overwhelming a thing for Damon. It was it was five days of, of jamming. Some of the jams were like an hour long. And it started off as a rock song, and you know, then it was a ballad of 40 minutes, and then another 10 minutes in, it's getting funky. It's a massive task to, to, to edit it all and, and make a coherent thing out of it. But I think that's what Graham managed to do brilliantly and Streety. I mean, I don't, yeah, I think the, t the two of them, between them, I don't, I, I don't think it would have happened. Me and Steve, went over to Damon's studio, you know, with our gift, whatever it is. And um, Damon came in and, you know, we were all laughing and joking a little bit and disguising the fact that we were all pretty uh, nervous about it. It was presentable, but it, you know, it was, it was a long way from, from finished, if you know what I mean. But the songs had been restructured, the dynamics and all of that, there was a lot of shape in them. And you could tell, I mean, within a few days when I've been working on them with Steve, I could tell that it was just amazing. And, it, you know, it was getting very, really exciting day after day after day after day. I get a phone call from Graham saying, uh, well, you need to come and there's a bit of crap bass on this on this one here. Can you come and do it again, please? And and I, and I pitched up to a, a studio in in uh, in Bermondsey. We had to pretend like we've got to keep the secret because, like, if word gets out and then the pressure starts building, it's it's just it's going to be an, another non-starter. So, keeping it secret was was vital. When Stephen sent the tracks round the first time, yes, there's some obvious holes in it, but actually, that all seems fairly doable. 
only reason I kind of hadn't sort of done pursued it any further was just I just had so much other stuff on, and I and I was obviously trying to avoid being in blur. I mean, I, I do try and avoid to be in blur. Not that might come across as a negative, but it's not. It's 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 something which is much bigger than me. I've never been sure whether Damon likes to have the responsibility with the blur thing or he hates it. <laughs> so that was the gamble, you know, it was it was it was a gamble. But you know, I think I put it in in, 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 in the nicest possible way and I, and I needn't have done really. He would have said just do it anyway. But you know, it was like if 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 you don't think it's any good by the time we've gone through it then we'll bin it and we'll put it down to something that was a nice five days but that didn't amount to much. I was getting kind of more excited by the sound of it uh, as it progressed and then and also slightly more sort of uh, uh, reticent about oh god if I like that that means I and then that means and that and then it sort of stretched off into the future and I was back in blur. For me, one of the interesting things of, lyrically about working on this record was that I was left with all of this sort of memory residue when I listened to it with Graham and Stephen. At that point, it was still, well, what, what, what is this about? It's unclear what this is about, and what do I want it to be about? I have no idea. I mean, what do I sing about on a new Blur record? I decided to go back on my own to Hong Kong I was there for a day and a half, but I mean, I just literally got off the plane and just started writing and filming and everything and sort of basically just relived all the habitual journeys and, and the exceptional journeys that I've, that, that I've ever made. I didn't know he was going back to Hong Kong. And it's a sensible thing to do because it's all about momentum. Damon said uh, he didn't quite know what he was going to write about, so I think that's, that was his solution to that problem, to go back to Hong Kong and try and read ignite the vibe. I felt like a bit like a spaceman and, and, I, and, and I started to take on dystopian levels of personal isolation and, and angst and fear. You know, it all got quite uh, intense. That's really helpful when you're writing to have a bit of that in there. Within this day and a half, I went on the tube to Nanking Street. I walked around the whole of that neighborhood. I went out to the outlying islands. I walked on the walkway, which is this insane kind of connecting, covered passageway through downtown Hong Kong. So you don't actually ever have to go on a street. And, and there's also there's a lot of these escalators, so you don't have to walk up any of the steep hills anymore. So you, you can almost sort of be completely static. And it's very dreamlike, Hong Kong, although it's an incredibly frenetic place, because it's just it's sort of going so fast that, that, that it sort of slows down and becomes... Really interesting. <laughs> no idea he was going to go there. I thought it was amazing when he told me. I thought, well, there's commitment for you. That meant that I'd done my job. You know, I'd actually inspired him to go to Hong Kong for and cram in as much in 48 hours as he could. If you put all the time together, it was. It's been a really, really, really quick, spontaneous record. 
I think they were probably the most productive sessions we've ever had. Well, at least because everyone thought it was too late for another baby, but um, they, they have, they've, they've given us that. So it was a kind of intense fertility treatment. The album pretty much is quite a heavy, heavy record, I think, lyrically, really, and how it sounds and how it makes you feel. I think it really couldn't be made by us until we were this sort of age and have experienced this and that and the other. But when Ong Ong comes on, it's all like... That was a kind of end of day song as well, a bit like Go Out. You've had a hard day and you just sort of, you know, oh, let's just try and do one more tune before we get back on that hot, sticky tube. The Ong Ong was the title of the original idea that I bought on my garage band to the sessions. There was no explanation for it. And so when I went back to start writing the lyrics over Christmas, I, I Googled Ong Ong. I said, what was I thinking about? What, what on earth was Ong Ong about? Because that title to that particular little idea from my garage band was maybe four years old or something like that. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because that might help me with writing the song. You know, there's some clue to why I'd called it Ong Ong. I Googled it, and there's absolutely nothing. There's one dodgy sort of trading company that uh, is sort of indirectly connected to someone like Starbucks or something in Malaysia or something, and that's it. There's no, there's no, there, there, there's no sort of revelation to be found on Ong Ong. And then it suddenly occurred to me, and this is the extraordinary thing about it is that if you put an H and a K, you've got Hong Kong. And I, I, honestly, that occurred to me a few months ago. Uh, and, but it had no relation to it. But how extraordinary that a record about Hong Kong contains a song called Ong Ong. It is symbolic of the serendipity of the record. hallmark of a good record is that it has lots of different centres, I suppose. But the main triumphant chest-beating thing for me is that it just hangs together like a really coherent body of work, and it sounds like Blur at their best. Ghost Ship, what's going on there? It's like, it's sort of like Compass Point, Blue-Eyed Soul. It is weird, but I love it. My technical guy, guitar bloke, had just sort of slung this Stratocaster together for me. It made me be able to do big bendy things, which turn up on the record. The Magic Whip is quite an ambiguous title. I spent quite a lot of time in China and I really, really love the culture. But you know, there's this extraordinary control that goes on sort of almost subliminally everywhere. And I have a lot more understanding of that now, having sort of read about the true nature of, it, of, of the Cultural Revolution. Each of our personal development is only something that we ourselves can really uh, experience. I can't experience Damon's. It was done over there, and the same with him. So what we bring to the records, are so, I mean, I always think of it as separate quests that we went on, and we have a rucksack of what we've experienced, things we've learned, sounds, etc., and new ideas. I kind of sort of understand why there's so much control. I don't necessarily agree, agree with many aspects of that control, but I think, you know, it is the magic whip, and the whip is, the whip is, is control, but the magic is kind of 
It's very prevalent in the Far East. read a lot about it I was I was utterly fascinated with with how could this place still exist and what was going on there so I got myself into the country and I traveled around I was looked after incredibly well everyone was really charming everyone's kind of in uh, under a spell that's what I would say about it but that that's in itself extraordinary and there's no advertising there's no internet there's no telephones it is very clearly a very sort of underdeveloped country in many ways and, and quite beautiful. I mean, you still see people with headscarves on working in the fields. It's very pastoral in, in, in many ways. The song Pyongyang is about my day spent visiting the mausoleum of the great leaders. It's kind of a postcard home on the last day of the regime to my daughter telling her that I'm going to get out. It always feels <laughs> just like the old days. I've got no idea how old I am. When I'm with the rest of them, it's just, it's just sort of like a parallel universe. It's kind of nice that we've all done other things. I think we had to. It's even nicer that we got back together and did something beautiful. It's still definitely Blur, but Blur that have moved on. That kind of statement, though, I think is true of most of our albums. Each one has consciously moved on from the last. We have not a band to release, release the same album over and over. It's an album in which you can feel the kind of closed-in claustrophobia of Hong Kong, but also it's a very romantic album. There's lots of really quite beautiful melodies, as always balanced with some quite angry guitars. Just a sort of throwaway, nasty kind of groove. You know, I think if you if you'd never have been able to produce that, if you if you'd gone to a posh studio with with sort of thinking about we must we must write the new lead track for the new Blur album, but just because it's so relaxed and dirty and gritty, it just it suddenly it starts sounding like Blur again. I think we're best when we're we're not trying too hard, well, personally speaking. That's a sort of what I call a sort of, a sort of 6.30 in the afternoon song. It sounds a lot dirtier than anything we'd have recorded in the past. The recordings still really maintain that kind of strangeness that they had in, in Hong Kong, whether I'd, we didn't make them posh or anything, but they were still pre patching up the odd we needed stronger drums on this one and that one, and some, some bass too as well. It's good doing it this way because every time I've come back to it, it's moved on quite a bit.
It's quite difficult when you've, when you've sort of subconsciously sung stuff that's got quite a, uh, a strong message and yet you haven't actually articulated anything to come back to it and go, well, what, what was I talking about there? I mean, clearly I was in Hong Kong and I probably just got off the tube. Maybe feeling that, maybe just driving through the insane kind of sort of high-rise habitation of the city. It's an incredibly powerful thing to have, being able to make that noise together. And it seems to overcome all arguments and divides and anything other than love that we feel for each other. Just getting back together and, and, and playing, especially in front of, of an audience. There's clearly a sort of a, a sensitivity uh, and dynamic which can only be acquired by having done a lot of gigs together. And those three musicians were, were the ones that I started learning how to be a musician with. So there's always going to be something there. Street's got a similar, it's quite, it's familiar um, to people who know, know, know Blur, I guess. Um, you know, it's a kind of mid-tempo thing. It, it's got those kind of familiar chording shapes, sounds of those chords, slightly cheeky sort of, sort of melody line and tons of catchiness, you know. It's one of those songs that we really enjoy playing live. And I mean, and that reference to uh, the 514 to East Grinstead, that was what I sang in uh, Hong Kong. That's a line which I kept. I could have changed it to, I don't know, somewhere a reference to, but I thought I'd just keep that one because I must have been thinking at that point because we've got a lot of friends back in the day who come from Sussex. I, I think it was a good way of working that we did, we, we, we had this massive output, splurged it all out. And I think it was good that I had tons of time to really, really go through it and look, look at it, and not just with a guitarist's head on. As almost, I guess, a, a producer, or just a musician, a general musician, uh, or, or an ear, or a fan as well, all of those things. And think about the other members in the group who, in my head, were all sitting around, either nodding their head or shaking their head as I was doing this with Stephen. about us making music together is it's a very exciting thing to do and we think it sounds good. We went in for, for a big for a big listen um, and then this song came on which has always been a song that I thought was it's a pretty one it's lovely I was like, hang on a minute, and um, started hearing these these lyrics coming through. It's about, like, you know, giving someone a second, third chance and then them seemingly just blowing it again with you, you know. And you're like, oh, God, I can't, I don't think I can cope with this anymore. He can write about our relationship very well, but I don't think he's, he's, he's really written it quite so obviously, I guess, as, as, in, as in that. I see sort of terracotta hearts, you know, him looking out for me a bit of hope, you know, and uh, not being 
us not being ashamed of, of having kind of sentimental feelings. You know, you're not really allowed to have them when, when you're, you're a man, hugely. Although I've used, I've used Hong Kong as a metaphor, there's an awful lot about our relationship, especially my relationship with Graham, on it. Because it just felt like, well, that's what this record is. You know, if it has an emotional truth, it's some, somewhere in, in, in that reconciliation between us two. It's really odd, but someone said, hey, you've always written about him, though, haven't you, or something? And I, and I think it's kind of, it's kind of true in a way. I think, I think Damon can sometimes have this thing of experiencing the world through me or getting a lot of energy through me about some other experience. I don't, I don't know. As a spaceman is, is a really interesting journey. It's a song that fitted perfectly into our state of mind and to the sort of, you know, the way that the insanely claustrophobic cities like Hong Kong can induce a sort of a spacey, dreamlike state in you just to sort of deal with. Kind of sense of missing home out of his lyrics I, I really comes across strong to me. You know, I think we were all feeling that a bit in, in Hong Kong. We had taken the decision not to go home. That's something you don't do lightly. The new stuff is taking it kind of more into a sort of a science fiction territory, I guess, and almost more m melancholic. Uh, that's kind of where this, this album, as people our age, after tons of literature and thinking about life, I guess, has left has put us with, with, with this record. It's going to be great to be able to play these songs. The, the problem is, I mean, the, the, the schedule is so tight that the danger is that we're not going to be able to learn how to play them. I mean, obviously, the bare bones of these things and the meat and potatoes of these songs are things that we we played, but they were a part of. Uh, you know, that hardly conscious jam session kind of uh, thing, where you're in a zone, you don't quite know what you're doing. Because it's such a stripped back and bare, essentially it's, it's just four guys in a sweaty room with no windows jamming. So it should be a really, really good thing to do live. I mean, there's, there's nothing there that isn't the four of us, you know, it's, it's, it's just a stripped back and bare skin and bones rock record.
Yonder is the night Lying by your side Tender is the touch Of someone that you love too much Tender is the day The demons go away Lord, I need to find Someone who can heal my mind Come on, come on, come on Come on, come on, come on, get through it. Come on, come on, come on.
Damon Albarn is mostly known for his contribution in music through Blur, Gorillaz, and his solo career. By looking through his catalog of music, you can find an impressive array of genres ranging from Britpop, punk rock, and hip-hop to electronica, folk, and gospel. Despite of having this talent of combining genres with ease and sharing himself through music, he's a very complicated person. He's both an introvert and an extrovert. He has a pessimistic view of technology, but still keeps on experimenting with it for musical purposes. And although he's hesitant to sharing his personal life at times, he still revealed some of his most precious memories in recent times. That's where I, I, I lived, but this was like back alley of a pub, so you can imagine it's pretty lively at night. Let's take a closer look. Damon was born on March 23rd in 1968 to his father Keith Albarn and his mother Hazel Dring. Hazel was a theatrical set designer and later started to work with kids with learning disabilities, teaching them art. His father also had different jobs within the art business. He used to be the manager for the psychedelic rock band Soft Machine and later became the head of the School of Art and Design at Colchester Institute. Because of their artistic backgrounds, their house would always be filled with music. And quite eclectic music, too. A mixture of blues, Indian and African music. Damon and his family also lived in one of the more culturally diverse parts of London to begin with, which, along with the music he was exposed to, might explain why he turned out to be such a versatile artist in the end. The Albarn family moved from Leytonstone to Colchester, an area that Damon has described as one of those burgeoning Thatcher experiments where they were building loads of small estates. Damon has also mentioned how the majority of people living there were of Anglo-Saxon heritage, some were still hanging on to their racist culture, and it was a lot more urban compared to Leytonstone. It was so different that he often felt like an outsider. Now, Damon had a thing for music ever since he was very little, but it wasn't until he was about 22 years old that his career in music really started taking shape. He had already enrolled on a part-time music course at Goldsmiths College, and he started playing in a band called Circus that later changed their name to Seymour, and then, because they signed to a record label that disliked their name, they decided to change their name again to something that you might find a little bit more familiar, Blur. After releasing the singles She's So High and There's No Other Way, and playing a series of shows at the Syndrome Club in London, they were soon hailed as pop stars. Their first album drew inspiration from the Manchester culture, the alternate rock and psychedelic music from bands like Happy Mondays, The Stone Roses, and in Spiral Carpets, amongst others. Now, despite of gradually increasing in popularity with their first two records, they made a much bigger jump with their third album, Park Life, which went to the top of the British charts and stayed in the album charts for 90 weeks. Since that time, it's been regarded as one of Britpop's defining albums. Now, going a little bit deeper, Park Life was a combination of many different ideas. 
A major influence on Damon's choice of lyrics at that time was London Fields, a novel written by Martin Amis. It's a black comedy set in London in 1999 against the backdrop of environmental, social, and moral degradation and the looming threat of a nuclear war. In the lyrics, Damon has various ways of portraying this degrading society. Sometimes he comes up with absurd stories about people going through midlife crisis. And what I'm referring to there is Tracy Jacks, the second track, which is an example of this middle-aged average man who realizes that he suddenly lived half of his life. And not satisfied with the contemporary life that he chose, he slowly turns into a man with an erratic behavior, running naked on the beach and destroying his own home with a bulldozer. Al Barnes' disinterest with modern life is portrayed even clearer in the next track, End of a Century. End of a century, While Bank Holiday comments on the repetitive and life-sucking nature of work and holiday cycles. You also have other songs on here where Al Barnes sings about other topics like the galaxy, love, consumer culture, drug use, and even suicide. But it's all connected into the context of dysfunctional adults that either take their life too far or takes it for granted. I think Albarn and the other guys in Blur were quite fed up with the life that they lived in the UK at this time. These guys were in their early 20s when this album was released, and probably frustrated like many other young adults are. Your view of the world quickly changes from how you imagined it to be while you were a teenager. Is life always this hard? Just when you're a kid? Always like this. But at the same time, you don't have any choice, you just have to keep on going and continuously strive for the life that you aspire to live. At this point, the fame that Damon had achieved was quite nerve-wracking for him. I th actually, I think Damon suffered most from being famous because he was the most famous. Crowds of people outside his house, paparazzi chasing him down the road with his bag of carrots and his loaf of bread. I think it's been well documented that I was going through hell at that time, I just, I, I, I had panic attacks. You talk to anyone who, who, who has that sort of uh, meteoric rise, uh, it, it takes a while to, to come out of that the other side. You can clearly see on his body language that he wasn't very comfortable doing interviews, but this was probably something that changed after doing many enough of them. Hello Chris. Oh, David, how are you? You alright? Not bad. <laughs> now you see, Damon, I've already told you tonight that you do intimidate me. In 2003, Blur released Think Tank, and this would be the last album before they would take a break as a band. At this point, Damon had already created a new group and released a new album with them. I'm of course referring to Gorillaz, which is a group that started as a collaboration between Damon and an artist named Jamie Hewlett. Damon and Jamie met as early back as in 1990 when Blur guitarist Graham Coxon asked him to do an interview for them. The interview was then published in Deadline magazine, which was the home of Jamie's cartoon strip, Tank Girl. 
The two guys eventually moved into the same flat, and while watching MTV together one day, they suddenly got an idea. Jamie recalled in an interview, if you watch MTV for too long, it's a bit like hell. There's nothing of substance there. So we got this idea of a cartoon band, something that would be a comment on that. Later on in the same interview, Damon said, people take themselves way too seriously. Gorillaz was probably just like Blur, another fun project for Damon. It wasn't something he took all too seriously. And together with Jamie, he created something that was quite ahead of its time as well. All their music videos featured cartoon characters in an alternate universe, something that easily appealed to kids because they're first of all used to watching cartoons from before, and these cartoons really don't need to make any sense to be interesting. So back in 2005, when I was 11 years old, and I heard Clint Eastwood and saw the music video with the zombies, the gorillas, the ghosts, and this creepy graveyard, I was hooked, and I bought my first CD, their debut album. I ain't happy, I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. From what I understand, the whole idea of Gorillaz as a project is very simple. They just want to create music that Damon and his collaborators simply like. They want to have fun in the process and that's it. Although Gorillaz always have been about storytelling and cartoons as well, they recently started to develop a more ambitious project with constructing worlds for the characters to live in. A great example would be their 2010 record, Plastic Beach. That's Plastic Beach. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's what it's for at the end of the day. Oh my god. Okay, so is this a film? Is this, this is a movie? Gorillaz is also a testament to the fact that Damon hates to be solo. He loves to collaborate with other people and you can see it in several of his documentaries. The way he talks to other artists and the way he looks at them, he probably knew for quite some time that he wanted a more open project like Gorillaz where he could bring in whoever he wanted. Artists like Mos Def, Bashi, Kano, Snoop Dogg, De La Soul, Lou Reed and so many others have collaborated with him over the years. But in 2014, Damon started a project that would take him in the exact opposite direction. A project entirely dedicated to exposing the deeper layers of his personal experiences. What I'm talking about here is the solo album that he released back in 2014, which is called Everyday Robots. During this record, he sings about his memories growing up in Leytonstone and Philbrook Road in a multicultural part of London. In the Culture Show documentary where he breaks down the creation of this album, he emphasizes how this place meant a lot to him. All the various smells, the people, and the music he heard at this time made him into who he is today, and making this record seemed to be an important reminder of where he came from, a nostalgic look at the past that would prepare him for the future. Everyday Robots is an album that takes snapshots of Damon's memories as he grew up, bring them into life through his music, and at the same time paints a very gloomy and pessimistic picture of the future. Just the title, Everyday Robots, is a testament to Damon's concern of where technology is currently taking us. As always, I feel it's terrifying and, and very inspiring, which is 
really how I feel about technology. We are everyday robots on our phones. Now, in later years, he acknowledged to Q magazine that drugs played a large role in his creative endeavors. Quote, I hate talking about this because of my daughter, my family, but for me, it was incredibly creative. He also wrote about this in the song You and Me. Quote, a combination of heroin and playing really simple, beautiful, repetitive shit in Africa changed me completely as a musician. I found a sense of rhythm. I somehow managed to break out of something with my voice. When Damon mentions Africa, he's most likely referring to Mali. Since 2002, he started going there more often to play with local musicians and learn more about the culture there. Although we don't know exactly why he chose to go there to begin with, it might have something to do with the music he was introduced to by his parents during his childhood. Now, Damon Albarn is quite a unique and outstanding man. He's created some of the best music of the past three decades. He's a man with a pessimistic view of the future, but still keeps on going. And music seems like a way for him to connect easily with himself and other people. It's like a vehicle that he uses to comment on himself and society. It's like a necessity for him, something he uses to express himself and feel free. At the end of this video, I just want to say thank you so much for watching, and I also want to bring an extra thanks to Amadeo, F Fun, Kyle, Marek, Marlene, Marshall, Middle Eight, Mike, and Nick over at Patreon for supporting me over there. And if you want to support me as well and make this channel even better, make sure you click the link in the description below. Thank you so much for watching. Goodbye.
wraps it up for today's episode the works of Damon Albarn including Blur Gorillas, and solo works by Damon Albarn I uh, in, in preparing for this episode I found uh, a lovely medley of, of Blur songs two of them actually I'm gonna pick the best one and leave it for you here at the end and let's take you out on a Gorillaz song from when they played live in Manchester in 2006 their album Demon Days this is a uh, B-side. It can also be found on the Gorillaz compilation called D-Sides, which is their version of B-Sides, I suppose. I want to thank you very much for listening on Anchor and Spotify. Like I told you at the top of the episode, you can send me a message. You can request things. Let me know anything that you uh, think we could be paying attention to here on the God Job podcast. I do it for you, and I appreciate you coming back. Peace.
Beautiful but nothing real 